Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history. It's also made possible in part by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens at 1320 Highland Avenue in the O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, fifth-generation native Floridian Harvey Oyer writes award-winning children's books about his family history. Charlie Pierce, the, the namesake of the, the story, his younger sister Lily, who is my great-grandmother, she grew up to be Lily Pierce Voss, and uh, she was the first white child born between Jupiter and the Florida Keys. We'll look at the African-American community in Fort Pierce in the 1950s. If we needed a doctor, Dr. Benton was right down the street. If we needed the dentist, Dr. Rhodes was right down. If something happened and we needed our shoes repaired, Mr. Warwick was there to repair our shoes. And read letters from the Great Depression. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Harvey Oyer III is a fifth-generation native Floridian. His children's books, The American Jungle and The Last Egret, have both won multiple awards from the Florida Publishers Association, the Florida Book Awards, the Mom's Choice Awards, and the Florida Historical Society. Both of Oyer's books are based on true stories from his family history. Harvey Oyer explains how his family came to Florida. Well, my family came here in 1872, and they actually came because of tuberculosis. They lived in Chicago, and four family members had died of tuberculosis, and a fifth family member, my great-great-grandmother's brother, had TB, and the doctor told him that he would most likely die if he stayed in Chicago, but he might stand a chance of living if he went to Southern California or Florida. And he came home and said, I need to move. Which one should I choose? And his brother-in-law, my great-great-grandfather, had been shipwrecked in the Florida Keys in the 1860s. And while they waited for their claim to be heard in the customs court, he said it was the greatest winter of his life that he should move to Florida. And his brother-in-law said, well, if I move there, will you come with me? And he said, sure. And they uh, began to make arrangements. They built a homemade boat. They were going to sail down the Mississippi River. And their departure was hastened by the Great Chicago Fire in 1871, which burnt every boat in the boatyard except theirs, which they thought that this is a sign from above we were meant to leave. And they sailed down the Mississippi River, across the Gulf of Mexico, and they sold their boat in Cedar Key, and they made their way across Florida on David Levy Uley's old railroad back up to the Jacksonville area and then started making their way further and further south, first Fort Pierce, then Jupiter, and eventually settled on Hypoluxo Island in the middle of what is today Palm Beach County. The 1943 Theodore Pratt novel, The Barefoot Mailman, and the 1951 film of the same name were based upon the first mail carriers between Palm Beach and Miami. These postmen walked their route along the beach and rode boats part of the way because there was no road between the two towns. Charlie Pierce, a relative of Harvey Oyer's, 
was one of the barefoot mailmen. We believe there were nine barefoot mailmen in history. There's some dispute as to how many there actually were. I think I can account for nine of them. And my great-granduncle, which was my great-grandmother's older brother, Charles W. Pierce, and he's the namesake of the children's book series, uh, The Adventures of Charlie Pierce, he was one of the barefoot mailmen. But interestingly, not by design. His neighbor, uh, an early pioneer settler named Ed Hamilton, had taken the contract with the U.S. Postal Service, and he had to have two people second the contract, meaning if he was ever ill and couldn't perform, they agreed to perform. So my Uncle Charlie and another man named Andrew Garnett agreed to second the contract of their neighbor and friend. But Charlie and uh, the other man who seconded the contract, they were farmers. And unfortunately, Ed Hamilton uh, became the most famous of the barefoot mailmen because he died in the line of duty, presumably eaten by alligators trying to swim across the Hillsborough River Inlet. Well, that meant that Uncle Charlie and Mr. Garnett had to make good on the contract. So they never wanted to be barefoot mailmen, but they had to fulfill the terms of the contract, which they did. And then they did not attempt to renew it. They went back to farming again. But Uncle Charlie became the iconic figure of the barefoot mailman because during uh, the Great Depression, one of the New Deal projects to put people to work was hiring artists to paint scenes of local history. And a famous American artist named Stephen Dohanos, who did many covers of the Saturday Evening Post, painted the legend of the barefoot mailman. Uncle Charlie was still alive. He became the model for it. So the iconic images of the barefoot mailman are all Uncle Charlie, and he's probably the one that deserved at the very least. Harvey Oyer's children's books are based upon the exploits of Charlie Pierce, which provide him with a lot of material. In addition to serving as the iconic image of the barefoot mailman, Oyer says that as a boy, Pierce helped to ease tensions between the Seminoles and pioneer settlers. Yes, it was a very tense period when my family moved to Florida. We had had on-again, off-again war uh, with the Seminoles, between the Seminoles and the United States for most of the 19th century. And it would flare up at times and then die down and flare up. So they were not in the middle of a war per se at the time. But when my family moved to the Jupiter Lighthouse, where my great-great-grandfather became one of the keepers of the lighthouse, just up the north fork of the Loxahatchee River was a large village of Seminoles. And after all, they had had hostilities with America over Florida for their lifetime and their parents' generation as well. So uh, they were not at all delighted to have another American family living in the neighborhood. And it was a tense situation. And that uh, situation was really diffused by the friendship of two boys. Eight-year-old Charlie, my great-granduncle, befriended a Seminole Indian boy named Tiger Bowlegs. And their friendship and learning each other's language and culture brought their mothers together, their fathers together, and their people together and all the hostilities between the Americans, the white settlers, and the Seminoles ended in southeast Florida. And I attribute that to the friendship of uh, of these peoples uh, instigated by two young boys, which is a very powerful message that two young boys can end what was the longest war in American history. And then my family, of course, went on to become very close with the Seminoles and many of the place names that we know in South Florida, uh, Pahokee, Okeechobee, High Paluxo, uh, Miami, uh, those are all Seminole or Miccosukee words, and they were all handed down through the pioneer settlers like my family. The town of Fort Pierce is named after one of Harvey Oyer's relatives. His family planted 20,000 coconuts in southeast Florida, giving Palm Beach, West Palm Beach, and Palm Beach County their names. When Oyer began to document his family's fascinating history, he decided that children's books were the best medium to convey his stories. Well, I had always... Uh 
I guess, intended to write a book because I have generations of accumulated knowledge. As a child growing up, my grandmother, who lived to 101, lived with us, and we heard these stories over and over again. Then professionally, I was an archaeologist, so I had a professional and personal interest in it, and I felt an obligation to somehow record this. But when the time came to write a book, I thought, should I do a sort of coffee table book that people buy but no one reads, or should I do something different? And I elected to do something different, write a children's book, because I thought if I could take these real-life stories that I grew up hearing about, and uh, they're terribly interesting and exciting, adventuresome, and enthrall the young Floridians in in these storylines, they're going to learn all the history, geography, flora, fauna, all the things we want them to learn. So uh, that's the route that I took, and I'm glad that I did. And I had no experience in writing children's book and books. In fact, I didn't even go to the library and check any out and read them. I just started writing the stories that I knew kids enjoyed. And I knew which stories they enjoyed because I had inadvertently done market research for years. I've spoken in literally hundreds of schools. And I knew which stories caused the little hands to go up in the air to ask questions, which ones got the kids excited, which ones bored them. So I extracted all the exciting stories stories that I knew children liked, and I put them in a book, and the book worked. And so then I extracted a bunch of other good stories and put them in a second book, and that book is working very well. Uh, It's been one of the best-selling children's books in Florida for nearly two years now. Harvey Oyer's most recent book, The Last Egret, tells about the horrific destruction of birds to provide feathers for the thriving plume industry of the early 20th century. Oyer's ancestor, Charlie Pierce, grew up with Guy Bradley, an iconic figure of Florida's early conservation movement. The storyline is a powerful one and really a sad one because it may be the darkest episode in American environmental history. It involved the extermination of literally millions of birds and uh, driving species to near extinction to feed a women's fashion craze in the late 19th and early 20th century of women wanting to wear colorful bird feathers called plumes in their hats, not only in the U.S. but Europe. Well, most of those birds were coming from the Florida Everglades. And my family, uh, as teenagers, the kids saw an opportunity to make money doing something they did every day as a way of life, which was hunting. And so it was a bit of a get-rich-quick scheme, and the kids fell for it, and they went on uh, what they called the Great Plume Bird Expedition, which was a five week expedition through the Florida Everglades down around the bottom of the state of Florida to hunt birds for money. But one by one, each of the five children in the storyline, they all experienced the same moral learning arc. And that is, no matter how much money we're making, it's not worth what we're doing. We are exterminating God's creatures just for money. And one by one, they checked out of the exercise until eventually they all came home. They all had great remorse. Uh, It very profoundly affected all of them, none more than Guy Bradley, and they would all spend the remainder of their adult lives uh, trying to make amends for what they, in retrospect, realized they participated in. So uh, long before the Gulf oil spill affected Florida a year ago, our greatest environmental disaster were hunting birds. And quite frankly, we still have risk today, not because we're hunting our birds and our panthers and our crested caracara, but we are uh, degrading and destroying their habitat. So we still struggle with that today. And that's one of the purposes of this book is to help the 
next generation of Floridians understand our responsibility as stewards of this very fragile natural world, the special place that is Florida. And if we're not careful, even though it's not through hunting, it could be destroying our water supply or putting too much fertilizer on our yard and letting it wash into our waterways, but we run the risk of doing the same thing. And if we don't become more conscious of it, the very specialness of Florida that caused my family to move here 140 years ago and all of your listeners' families to move here, it'll be gone. Two of the five children depicted in the true story of the last egret are relatives of the author. Charlie Pierce, the, the namesake of the, the story, his younger sister Lily, who is my great-grandmother, she grew up to be Lily Pierce Voss, and uh, she was the first white child born between Jupiter and the Florida Keys, and that's what the National Register of Historic Places marker says. I guess the politi- politically correct way today would be, say, the first non-Native American child. Uh, their Seminole Indian friend, Tiger Bowlegs, and Guy and Louis Bradley, who were brothers, and their family were early pioneer settlers in what is today the town of Lantana in modern-day Palm Beach County. And Guy Bradley, of course, is the one that grew up to become the game warden uh, in what is today Everglades National Park. He was killed in the line of duty. Uh, Much literature has been written about him. He became the martyr for the American environmental movement. In addition to earning many awards, the last egret is being successfully used in Florida classrooms. Harvey Oyer designed the book to meet Sunshine State standards for teaching Florida history. I'm thrilled that it has been because I wanted children to read this because I uh, sensed a void in the children's literature space on Florida history. Well, that's not only true of outside reading literature, it's true of in-class material. And it's a legislative mandate to teach Florida history, as you know, in the fourth grade, and most school districts don't do it because it's an unfunded mandate. Fortunately, the Palm Beach County School District, which is a very large school district, recognized the opportunity that the last egret presented. It meets over 55 Sunshine State teaching standards, which means a teacher can teach virtually a semester's worth of requirements in a very short amount of time, and the kids have a good time doing it. So they built a curriculum around it. Our local PBS network built a documentary around it, also entitled The Last Egret, and they made it mandatory in Palm Beach County, which is a very large school district, and all of our private schools adopted it, and all of our charter schools adopted it, even all the boys and girls clubs adopted it. And they did that for the first time last year in 2010, and they're doing it again this year in 2011. And it caused a number of other school districts to take notice. So now the Broward County School District, the Martin County, Lee, Charlotte, and Hillsborough County have all approved it. And they're all somewhere in the process of either using it, implementing it, attempting to raise the money to buy the books to implement it, somewhere in that process. And my goal would be to have all 67 school districts in Florida adopted on a statewide basis because what our children will learn through this process will give them a fundamentally different and better understanding of Florida's unique history, archaeology, geography, topography, our flora, fauna, our environment, our Native American history. And we will grow a generation of better educated Floridians who will grow up to be better educated voters, office holders, and we can make a a, a remarkable change in Florida's future. Harvey Oyer III is a fifth-generation Floridian and author of the award-winning children's books The American Jungle and The Last Egret.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. To find Harvey Oyer's books and many other great books on Florida history and culture, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This Moment in Florida History features historian Michael Gannon. Before Florida became a state in 1845, it passed through numerous transformations including that of first occupant of the Spanish borderlands. Those lands were the southern rim of the present American states from Florida to California. They were given the name borderlands in the early 1920s by historian Herbert E. Bolton. By Bolton's definition, the borderlands were Spanish territories that stood between Mexico to the south and the English and French-founded colonies to the north. Florida, with its capital at St. Augustine, was the eastern anchor of the chain. San Francisco was the western. At the borderland's height, between 1783 and 1802, the Spanish flag, passing westward from St. Augustine through New Orleans to Santa Fe and as far as San Francisco, flew over an area larger than Western Europe. University of Florida historian Michael Gannon. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Janie Gould talks with Sam Gaines, a longtime resident of Fort Pierce. Racial segregation was the custom, if not the law, in the South of the 1950s, and Fort Pierce was no exception. Sam Gaines, who is black, grew up when the Lincoln Park area of Fort Pierce was virtually a self-contained community for black residents. Fort Pierce was a typical southern town. There was segregation, but technically we did not know that we were being segregated against. The area that I grew up, which was then the Lincoln Park area, we had everything we needed. We had our own drugstore. Parents would send their kids up to Mr. Brown's drugstore if they got sick. They had to go up to Mr. Brown to give him medicine. Once a year, we had to go to Mr. Brown because he gave us that spring cleaning out of castrol. That was a ritual. If we needed a doctor, Dr. Benton was right down the street. If we needed the dentist, Dr. Rhodes was right down. If something happened and we needed our shoes repaired, Mr. Warwick was there to repair our shoes. Everything that we needed was right there in our area. So we did not have, but we did not realize we did not have. In schools, our teachers provided us with the nourishment and the encouragement that they thought that we needed that sustained us. Now looking back over with the lack of material that they had, they did a beautiful job and a wonderful job, but it wasn't until we got up to look back over the years and say, hey, we were being denied. You mean books, that type books? of thing? Books. Now, for instance, when I say segregation, I grew up on 7th Street. The State Department building is sitting on U.S. 1, between U.S. 1 and 7th Street now, the Benton Building. When I grew up on the north part of the canal was a playground. 
They had all type of playground equipment in there. I was right across the street, but I could not go across the street to that park. The south part of it, which is the parking lot, now that was just a huge park where families would have picnics and everything, but we could not go over there. Segregation? Segregation. Did you understand that at no, the time? No, We just knew we couldn't go there. So parents are there, don't even worry about it. So we did our own. We would go make a swing in the tree, do our own little thing, but uh, no, we did not realize it. Did you go to the beach? There was a portion of the beach that was set up for us. That was before a segment of it was named Frederick Douglass Beach. By the time I graduated from high school, Frederick Douglass Beach was there. There was no pavement, but you had to go through dirt roads all the way down. Sometimes you get stuck. If there was a lot of kids, you get out and you push the car. North Beach we did not go to. We At all? No, we didn't go to North Beach. Was there a pool, a swimming no, pool? No, 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 no such thing as a swimming pool. During that time, black kids had to learn to swim up in Taylor's Creek. Is that where you learned to swim? Yeah. The old hands would take us up there and throw us off. <laughs> I guess that taught you. That and plus I became a Boy Scout. By being a Boy Scout and going to camp during the summers, I learned how to do a lot of things at the Boy Scout camps. In 1953, I went to the first or the second jamboree, Boy Scout jamboree in Irvine Ranch, California. Ronald Reagan came and spoke because he was a, still a movie star. Dwight Eisenhower was president. He addressed us that night at the Jamarees. Well, that was a heady time for you, wasn't it? <laughs> Going to California. How did you get to California? Well, we went by train, which was segregated, of course. Here we are, Boy Scouts, all going to the Jamboree. We went from here to Jacksonville. We met up with some more black scouters from Jacksonville. Some came down from Carolina. So we actually had a black unit. And we all were together, even though we were all Boy Scouts. Even at that, it did not phase us. We had fun. What values did your mother and your grandparents and your dad instill in you? Whatever you do, you do it well. Don't shirk back. If you are asked to do something, do it. If you go on a job, give that employee a day's work for whatever he's paying you for. And just be honest. Sam Gaines owns Stone Brothers Funeral Home in Fort Pierce. He served 34 years on the St. Lucie County School Board. Gaines spoke with Janie Gould. This is Florida Frontiers. Once I built a railroad, I made it run. I made it run against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? The 1920s housing boom in Florida went bust in 1926, sending the Sunshine State into the Great Depression years before the rest of the country. Bill Dudley has this look at letters from the Great Depression. I read through these letters and and thousands of others like them, and and I feel myself in the archives beginning to tear up and understand the the anxiety and the anxiousness and and the fear that people lived with. FSU historian Elna Green. The idea for her book, Looking for the New Deal, Florida Women's Letters During the Great Depression, came about during a research trip to the Roosevelt Library in Hyde Park, New York, when she began to read letters from people asking the government for help in the darkest days of the Depression. I was enthralled by them. It was easy to get distracted from my other project and and just to sit there and read them. And they're in boxes by the thousands 
from all, obviously from all across the country, not just from Florida. In the end, she decided to focus on the depression experiences of Florida women, compiling over 300 letters from the Roosevelt Collection and national and Florida state archives. Women appealing to local and federal officials with anxious, often desperate requests for relief. They represent the experiences of people in the cities, rural people, um, North Florida, South Florida, black letter writers, white letter writers. Across America, there were layoffs, bank failures, and for closures. But in addition, Florida had had two large hurricanes, a land bust, a medfly attack on the citrus industry, and in 1929, the highest per capita public debt in the country. Social service programs lagged behind those of other southern states. Women in desperate need asked for money, for services, the release of a husband from jail, for child care, and for jobs. Men who were unemployed during the 1930s, during the New Deal, might be given work relief jobs, building buildings, road construction, building airports and things. But in the 1930s, those jobs weren't considered appropriate for women. So women's work relief usually consisted of sewing. They set up sewing rooms all across the country. Seen in the light of today's political cynicism, many of the requests seem naive. One section of the book contains letters sent to First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. She had a very approachable image in the 1930s. Although it was before television, she was a very well-known face. She had a newspaper column that appeared all across the country. And women identified with her, and they would write to her and Rather than ask someone who actually was in a position of authority, they would write to Eleanor Roosevelt because they felt close to her. And they would be remarkably forthright in telling personal details about their lives. They would they would tell secrets that they wouldn't have told anyone else. And those letters in particular seem to me to be from the heart. Both Elna Green and University of West Florida history professor Mary Lou Rood, who has studied Pensacola women in the 1930s, say they were struck by the resilience and initiative of the women in trying to help themselves. They explain that they, they need to be doing certain things so that they can move ahead into other areas. In other words, if I can have this job, then I can pay off this debt, then I will not have to take charity. So they're looking for routes, they're seeing ways to handle the situation that they're in. One woman who, who wrote and said to Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, please don't let my husband know that, that I've done this because I don't think he can handle it. He's so used to being the breadwinner and, and so forth. And so she's trying to protect him from shame or from embarrassment or from any kind of loss of dignity. So these are people who are fighting for their families and they're to be admired, not pitied. Very often they will say things like, please do what you can for us so that we can continue to have our self-respect. We don't want to have to take money from other people. We don't want to have to ask for help. We want to work. One insight from the book is the change in the way we as Americans look at charity and public assistance now versus the first years of the Depression. For a very short while, the majority of Americans agreed that poverty was, for most people, something that they couldn't prevent. Um, it wasn't their fault. Their unemployment was not their fault. The conditions that they found themselves in were not the product of bad character or bad choices. And so for there, there for a little while, there was, I think, something of a reasonable national consensus that we need to take care of people. I, I think it's it's become 
harder for us to remember that today. Historian Elna Green, her book is Looking for the New Deal, Florida Women's Letters During the Great Depression, published by University of South Carolina Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Be sure to join us again next week right here, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Thanks for listening. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history. It's also made possible in part by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens at 1320 Highland Avenue in the O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida.